You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Jinx, the superfood-powered dog kibble everyone's been talking about. See the results for yourself and try their one-month transformation. Within the first few weeks, you'll see how Jinx can help with your dog's energy, mood, and even digestion. And it's all thanks to the high-quality ingredients they use, like organic chicken, Atlantic salmon, and grass-fed beef. Try the one-month transformation today. Find Jinx in your local Walmart. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Heads up, this episode spends a lot of time talking about violence against animals, as well as some children and some potentially disturbing sexual content. I don't think any of it is particularly graphic or gratuitous, but it is a big part of the story. So if you can't handle that sort of thing, you probably want to skip this one. Or else go in carefully, ready to turn it off or skip through things or however you feel comfortable. But before we get to it, I have a request. A few years ago, I had this idea to ask you, the audience, for stories of things that you personally got wrong. And I set up a hotline for people to call in and leave messages. Unfortunately... At that time, there weren't enough of you, the audience, to make it work. But I think there might be now. So I'm hoping you'll share your tales of error with me. It can be anything. Maybe a word you always thought meant something different than it does, or maybe you made some mistake or fell for something or had a plan that went wrong you'd like to talk about. If you've got a story you want to share, give us a call at 708 733 5584 and tell us about it. You can leave as much or as little identifying information as you like. It can be totally anonymous if you prefer. Just give a ring and leave a voicemail or go to our website, constantpodcast.com, and write up your story on our contact page. Again, the number is 708 733 5584 or write us via the contact form on our website. I'm really excited. I hope you'll be in touch. All right, now on with the show. The most important thing was to follow the law, and the law said there must be a trial. So the court was convened, outdoors, in the high city square, for all the people of Basel to watch. The year was 1474, late summer. And that's important, because an open-air courtroom in August, in northwest Switzerland, with the sun shining and the gentle warm babbling of the Rhine in the background, is a very different thing than an open-air courtroom in January, in northwest Switzerland, under the gloom, the snow, the icy river. To attend the summer trial could be a sign of curiosity, or community, or even entertainment. It might have served the same purpose as a carnival, or a street fair. But if the people of Basel came out for a winter hearing, it would have meant something more dour. Outrage. Worry. Obligation. Duty. Either way, the most important thing was to follow the law. And the law said there must be a trial. And to have a trial, there must be witnesses. The law said there must be a trial. It didn't matter that the suspect's guilt was plain to see, that everyone in the city knew what he had done. 
In lesser times, a mob might have erupted, strung him up without due process, or a single vigilante might have stepped up on the tacit behalf of the community and taken care of the deed in quiet, sparing everyone the spectacle and shame of airing the matter so publicly. But that wasn't the law, and the most important thing was to follow the law. So the court was convened, and in spite of the good weather, the court moved with its typical pomp. The judge promised to weigh impartially the arguments presented, even though no one doubted the circumstances or the outcome. The prosecutor made his case as best he could, though no one in the stands needed much convincing. And the defender, standing against the weight of sentiment and the height of evidence, nevertheless did everything in his power to advocate for his client. Because that was what the law said should be done. And the most important thing was to follow the law. Nevertheless, it's safe to say that the trial did not last long, nor the deliberation. The law insisted on fairness, but on justice also. Once the defense had offered its case and the prosecution rebutted it, the accused was in short order found guilty and given the standard sentence. He was first excommunicated, cut off from the body of the church and the love of God. Then the executioner was called for. And although there was no law to follow regarding last words, even still, in his final moment, the convicted cried out. <laughs> Having presumably made his peace, the rooster of Basel was executed in public view, just as the law commanded. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Today's episode... The Cockatrice. I could tell you the story of the Rooster of Basel in two minutes flat, but it wouldn't make much sense and it wouldn't hold much meaning. There's an awful lot of context that has to be teased out if this is going to be anything more than trivia, and it's a lot more than trivia. Although, yes, there is also a lot of trivia. The first bit of which is this. If you didn't know it, Europeans used to hold trials for animals. Pretty frequently, actually. So that part of the Rooster of Basel story isn't as spectacular as it might initially appear. The most infamous animal trial in European history, and the one you're most likely to have heard, is said to have occurred in Otten, Burgundy, in 1522, when the local rats got into the barley crop. Pretty standard rat behavior, you'd think, but it must have been more, it must have been worse. The rats, I think we can assume, must have eaten well past their fair share, and then shit that share upon the remainder. The people of Otum weren't just angry, they were scared and desperate. The Duchy of Burgundy had fallen apart 40 years earlier, when its leader, Duke Charles, attempted to invade neighboring Nancy. People gave Charles a number of by-names over the years. Charles the Warrior, Charles the Terrible. His hagiographers preferred Charles the Bold. But the name that stuck was Charles the Reckless, and he really earned that title at Nancy. He attempted to lay siege to the city in the dead of winter. By the time he arrived at the walls, most of his troops had died from exposure and hunger. In contrast, the opposing army, a mix of Swiss and Lorrainian troops, were quite comfortable, and quite comfortably routed the Burgundians. Charles's body was found the next day, naked, partially encased in ice, with wolves chewing at it. That was the end of the Duchy of Burgundy. The barley farmers of Otun in 1522 weren't just feeding themselves anymore. They owed taxes and tributes to France, and the rats pilfering left them at a pretty pass. 
They asked the city for some sort of help, some kind of protection, and the local magistrate answered them as best he could. He wrote up a formal complaint to the bishop's vicar asking to have the rats charged, tried, and excommunicated, or anathematized, for their crimes. So the process began. The vicar made a court date, cited the rats to appear thereupon, and appointed for them a public defender, Bartholomew de Chazanus. De Chazanus was already an accomplished jurist. He'd studied at top schools around Western Europe and served directly under Pope Julius II before settling in Autun, where he mostly practiced criminal law and wrote influential books on French customary law. But, allegedly, it was the rat trial that made him famous. The rats missed their first court date. I know, you're not surprised, I'm not surprised either, but I'm not so sure about the people in Autun. The judge, the prosecutor, I'm, I'm not saying they expected the rats to be present and on time, but as we'll see over the course of things, the ecclesiastical court was considered very powerful, very righteous. If the bishop's vicar told the rats of Autun to show up in court, well, like I say, he probably wasn't surprised they didn't, but he probably also wouldn't have been surprised if they did, which is, itself, surprising. One person who wasn't surprised by any of it was Bartholomew de Chazanez. He was ready to explain the rat's absence with a fine bit of legal reasoning. His clients were too far afield. They lived scattered all around the province, in the fringes of villages, in every direction. They couldn't be expected to learn of and answer a summons made just once from the seat at Autumn. He requested the vicar publish another citation for a second court date and to have it announced from every pulpit in every parish where his defendants might be dwelling. The vicar approved that motion, and for some number of Sundays after, priests at every church throughout Burgundy read out before their congregations an official summons for all the rats to come to court. The second date came, and, wouldn't you know it, still no rats in the courthouse. Or none that ate barley, at least. Eh? Lawyer jokes? De Chazanos had an explanation for this, too. Of course his clients hadn't come to the court. How could they? The journey wasn't just long, but perilous. It was within the rats' legal rights, he argued, to disobey the summons, because the court couldn't guarantee their safe passage. If a person knew some gangsters were waiting in the shadows to whack them on their way to testify, and the court didn't provide them some sort of security, they couldn't be expected to walk into the maw of danger. They would have a right to refuse the writ and make an appeal. And the gangsters that stalked his clients were especially dangerous. Until, and unless, something could be done to protect them from the roving cats of Burgundy, they could not appear before the bench. We don't know the eventual conclusion of the Autumn Rat Trial. If we're being totally honest, we don't know that there was an Aton Rat Trial, although it seems more likely than not. We know that people were impressed by de Chesina's arguments, which would seem to indicate that they were at least a little successful, but the ultimate fate of the barley-stuffed rats isn't recorded. The story still works without its ending, though, because in just this little bit of legal wrangling, we can start to make a lot of inferences about the workings of medieval animal courts writ large. Just like with the Rooster of Basel, we can see that the letter of the law was strictly followed, and that procedure was held paramount. What we can't see in either case is the spirit of that strictness. Was all this done in seriousness? 
Or was it a joke made funnier by acting it out with the appearance of seriousness? It's tempting to take that off-ramp, to say that we couldn't have prosecuted rats for real. But that's a real underdog argument. The trouble with looking at the history of animal trials, or one of them at least, is trying to wrap your mind around what purpose they could have possibly served. There are more than 200 such trials officially attested to in the historical record, and Lord knows how many others that didn't make the papers. This was something that happened so commonly that those involved didn't go through a lot of pains justifying themselves, which is shriekingly frustrating to those of us left here in the present baffled by the whole thing. On one end of the spectrum is the slim but not entirely impossible chance that the whole thing was pageantry that these trials were only conducted to ameliorate the interminable tedium of living in medieval Europe. Professor Sarah McDougall has suggested that they might not have been performed at all, but just written up so that law students would have something interesting to read. That, too, seems pretty improbable. It's been suggested that the reason these trials were so slavishly devoted to proper procedure was precisely because they were really built for the lawyers who tried them. Maybe they served as mock trials, or maybe they were excuses to flex lawyerly creativity. Perhaps there were just too many lawyers to go around and not enough casework, so animals were brought to court just to keep everybody busy. Somehow, that explanation seems even more comical than the phenomenon it means to explain, and I, I just don't buy it. There are too many cases, too much similarity between them, too many records of critics and supporters giving earnest arguments for and against the practice. Even when you strip away the poor sourcing that many of the stories suffer from, and even if you dive deep into the pool of utter bewilderment that this subject naturally creates, I think you still have to acknowledge that people really were accusing, trying, convicting, and punishing animals, and then try to figure out what purpose that served. That inquiry, however, is flawed, because it seems clear that animal trials didn't serve just one purpose, but several. There are a lot of ways you can slice and dice the record. This event is like that, but not like the other, and so forth. But for our purposes, I think we can split animal trials into three different kinds. The rats fall into the first kind, the ecclesiastical trials. These were cases brought not before a criminal or civil court, but before the church. Generally, these were RICO cases brought against groups of animals, usually pests and vermin, who were thought to be eating crops, damaging property, or spreading disease. Matters like this required the intervention of the church for a reason that's plain to see in Chazenot's rat's case. In order to try a swarm of locusts, let alone punish them, you needed some way to properly charge and summon them. A civil judge didn't have that power. But the church had the power of God. So, when the vicar put forth a summons for all the rats in Burgundy, that summons had the enforcement of the Almighty behind it. And if some countless number of cockroaches were found guilty, only the church had the ability to punish them through excommunication. I'm using the terms excommunication and anathemization interchangeably, which is probably going to annoy a couple of Catholic scholars out there, but don't worry, we'll get a little more specific here. If the medieval church excommunicated a person, they weren't just denying them access to wine and crackers. They were effectively damning them to hell and signaling to the world that said person was beyond the reach of God 
and beyond the protection of law. They could be beaten, robbed, even killed without moral or legal penalty. They were, in essence, the walking dead. An excommunicated or anathematized non-human was even worse off. Somewhere around the year 980 AD, a swallow entered a cathedral in Rhineland and took a shit upon Bishop Egbert of Trier in the middle of his liturgy. He anathematized the whole species on the spot, calling down the wrath of God on any swallow that would ever again intercede at Trier Cathedral. According to legend, the offending bird dropped dead on the spot, and it became known throughout the country that any such animal that passed through the church edifice immediately fell limp to the ground. In the early 12th century, a swarm of flies took hold in the Abbey Church of Fweni, annoying congregants and clergy alike, until the blessed St. Bernard of Clairvaux excommunicated the little buggers, at which point, according to Abbot William of St. Theodore, they suddenly dropped dead in such numbers that the next day they had to be cleared out by shovel. In the 1220s, Bishop Guillaume de Salus of Lausanne excommunicated the eels from Lake Geneva, a few years later, he did the same thing for the leeches. All of these events were compiled and explained by none other than Bartholomew de Chosenot, the very lawyer who, potentially, got his rat clients off the hook. Bartholomew went on to have a distinguished career as both a lawyer and judge and wrote a thorough defense of the practice of animal trials, which included these examples of their efficacy. Of course, None of these stories included the actual trial, only the punishment, which Bartholomew explains by saying that the circumstances were too urgent and legal recourse unfortunately unavailable. Whenever possible, a trial ought to be held, and it ought to be held fairly, with diligent counsel overseeing the accused. 35 years before the rats, Alton had a problem with slugs, which were charged not only with eating and damaging important herbs and grapes, but also with creeping people out. Cardinal Jean Rohin found them guilty, but their defense successfully argued that the slugs should be given a chance to vacate before the church covered them in the salt that was excommunication. Rowan found this request reasonable and on August 17, 1487, ordered a series of public processions to be made through the gardens of Autun, announcing the verdict and ordering the slimy invertebrates to cease their illegal activities and flee the property. And, quote, If they do not heed this, our command, we excommunicate them and smite them with our anathema. At the northern tip of present-day Italy, back in 1519, the town of Stelvio had a problem with moles, which were, to quote the official indictment, burrowing and throwing up the earth so that neither grass nor green thing could grow. They were appointed a defender by the name of Hans Grimdner, so that they, I quote again, may have nothing to complain of in these proceedings. The prosecution brought on a slew of witnesses who testified to the harm the moles had caused in their fields, but Grimdner gave a spirited defense. He urged the court to consider all the good the moles did for the community, eating pests and helping to till the earth. The court was less than convinced and banished the offenders from the town, but not before acquiescing to Greibner's request for a two-week stay so that the youngest and most innocent of the moles would have time to find safe passage through the dogs and cats of the area. 
Aside from issues of fairness and assurances of safety, the best defense an attorney could give his accused swarm was to explain their motive. Take, for instance, the weevils of St. Julian, which infested the local vineyards. That the bugs were a real problem wasn't at question, and they were certainly doing damage to a winemaker's property. But what had brought them to Bordeaux in the first place, and why were they making such trouble? It was in the nature of weevils to eat grape leaves, just as it was in the nature of rats to eat barley. That nature was prescribed by God, so how could good Christians punish them for it? On the other hand, hadn't God given dominion over the beasts of the earth to man? And therefore, wasn't it the duty of good Christians to control them and keep them from evil? It all depended, when you thought about it, on whose will the weevils were doing. God's or the devil's? The first time the weevils showed up in St. Julian, in 1545, it was decided that they were sent by God as punishment for some local sin. So the remedy the church offered was obvious and easy. The people of St. Julian were to give public prayers around the vineyards, professing their trespasses and begging forgiveness. And also, tithing money to the church. Amazingly, or suspiciously, I leave it to you to choose the adjective, this act of faith is said to have worked, and the weevils vanished. For a while. In 1587, they reappeared, and this time the winos of Bordeaux were less contrite. Nah, I'm pretty sure these things are working for Satan, they said. But, as usual, the weevils were given a defender, Antoine Filiol. And, as usual, the defender proved quite compelling. The weevils were God's creatures, put here with divine purpose. That they ate grape leaves wasn't some demonic twist. That was what they'd been doing since Genesis chapter 1. Well, fine, said the prosecutor. The weevils have to eat something, but we all have to eat something. That doesn't make it okay to steal a loaf of bread, you know. The people of St. Julian offered a compromise with the weevils of St. Julian. They'd lay aside a tract of property for the express use of the insects, Weevil land, if you will, where they'd be free to blight whatever plants they wanted. But they had to leave the vineyards alone. Filiol rejected the first offer, saying that the land on offer wasn't suitable for his client's habitation. The prosecution countered with a better offer of a plot full of trees and bushes and with a spring on it, with the additional condition that the citizens of the town would be allowed to pass through Weevil land and to use the water. Unlike the trial of the rooster of Basel, Weevils v. Winemakers was anything but brief. It slogged on for a grueling eight months. And, like the rats of autumn, we don't know how it ended. We might guess that it didn't go the Weevils' way, though. The final page of the court record, upon which the decision was recorded, was lost, eaten away by some sort of bug.
This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. People don't always realize that physical symptoms like headaches, teeth grinding, and even digestive issues can be indicators of stress. And let's not forget about doom scrolling, sleeping too much, sleeping too little, undereating, and overeating. I'm prone to all of the above. Stress shows up in all kinds of ways, and in a world that's telling you to do more, sleep less, and grind all the time, here is your reminder to take care of yourself. Do less, and maybe try some therapy. I'm a true believer in therapy. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so that you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy. Give it a try and see if online therapy can help lower your stress. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and constant listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash the constant. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash the constant. Hunting down answers to your questions can be rewarding. When it comes to hiring, you don't always have as much time as you'd like to spend finding great candidates with the right skills. That's why there's Indeed, the best hiring partner your team can get. If you're hiring, you need Indeed, because Indeed is the hiring partner where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. And Indeed is the only job site where you're guaranteed to find quality applications that meet your must-have requirements or else you don't pay. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites hoping to find candidates with the right skills, you need one powerful hiring partner that can help you do it all. Indeed partners with you on every step of the hiring process. Find great talent through time-saving tools like Indeed Instant Match, assessments, and virtual interviews. With Instant Match, as soon as you sponsor a post, you get a short list of quality candidates with resumes on Indeed that match your job description, and you can invite them to apply right away. Plus, you only pay for quality applications that meet your must-have requirements. I love that Indeed makes hiring all in one place so easy. So join more than 3 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. Start hiring right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash The Constant. Offer valid through April 30th. Go to Indeed.com slash The Constant to claim your $75 credit before April 30th. Indeed.com slash The Constant. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. In 1685, the Bavarian city of Ansbach was shrouded by a terrifying threat. A wolf, which had been picking off local livestock for half a year or so, turned its eyes and teeth to new prey. Humans. The records are frustratingly vague, but over the course of three months, this wolf attacked some large number of people and killed two, if not three, children. To put an end to this reign of terror, local hunters dug a large pit about 10 feet deep and built slick stone walls around its edge. They concealed the hole with branches and leaves, and at the very center placed a rooster. Not the rooster we're here to eventually talk about, though, just a regular old rooster. Soon, the wolf, lured by the siren crow of that delectable foodstuff, found its way to the cockerel, crossed onto the twigs, broke through, and was trapped in the hole, where the hunters speared it to death. But that wasn't the end of the wolf of Ansbach. See, up until recently, Ansbach had been misruled by a despotic burgemeister named Michael Light. When Light finally kicked the bucket, the Ansbachians breathed a short sigh of relief. 
But soon, rumors started flying. People said that they had seen Light attending his own funeral. The appearance of a lone, child-devouring wolf so soon after the suspicious death of the loathed mayor couldn't be a coincidence. Maybe he was being punished by Satan, or maybe rewarded. But this wolf was no natural animal. It was Michael Light, back from the dead, come to terrorize Ansbach once more. So merely trapping him in a pit and stabbing him with long spears wasn't enough. Once the animal was killed, the hunters entered the hole and retrieved its body. They skinned it, sawed off its snout, dressed it in a cloak, a wig, and a cardboard mask so that it would better resemble its true identity, the hated Michael Light. The costumed wolf corpse was then paraded through the streets of Ansbach and brought to a hill near the center of town where a gibbet was built. Then, the Michael-masked body of the wolf of Ansbach was hung by the neck and left to rot in the open air, a final, proper punishment both for the man who had abused and the wolf who had stalked the good people of Ansbach. The Wolf of Ansbach is a very eye-catching and atypical version of the second form of animal justice. When you had a problem with pests or vermin, some collective of mites or mice, ants or asps, rats or bats, you could turn to the church, who would initiate an ecclesiastical hearing against the offenders that might end in excommunication. But when an identifiable animal, an individual or small group, committed a more felonious crime, like theft or murder, you could count on a more secular, criminal mode of justice. The advantage of a trial overseen by the church was that the church had the power to summon all the moles or eels or june bugs that were bothering you and to inflict spiritual punishment on them if they failed to appear. But if the little beasties survived their excommunication, which they did with an annoying frequency, then it was up to you and your fellow villagers to go around stepping on them yourselves. The church didn't have any enforcement power in the corporeal physical realm. But if a horse kicked your husband, or a dog stole your meat pie, or a pig ate your baby, the state could have them jailed or executed, not in a spiritual sense, but right there in the here and now. If a pig ate my baby, you might have just said with a single cocked eyebrow, oh yes, you heard me extremely right. The annals of animal trial history are dotted with odd outliers, the caterpillars of Leon in 1120, the snails of Macon in 1487, Canadian turtle doves, and, most conspicuously of all, a pod of dolphins who were convicted of something or other in 1596 Marseille. Not to mention your typical dogs and locusts and horses and rats and donkeys and cows and goats and worms, but far and away, the most frequent and serious offenders were pigs, and the most frequent charge against them was murder. There was the pig who was burnt at the stake for eating a child near Paris in 1266. In 1394, a pig was hung for murdering a child at Romaine in the southwest of France. There are at least a dozen such accounts in Brocon in 1420, in Trochere in 1435, in Lausanne in 1474, near Nancy in 1572, and so on and so on. After a while, the incidents start to bleed together, which is pretty weird, given that what we're talking about is the execution of pigs for killing children. A handful of these pig trials do manage to stand out even above the bizarre background hum. 
In one such trial, the prosecution made a point of noting that the pig had not only killed a baby and eaten it too, but had the gall to have done so on a Friday, in defiance of the Friday fast. The court accepted this as a, quote, serious aggravation of the already heinous crime. A particularly striking case is that of Yehan Martin, a five-year-old boy from Savigny, who was killed by a sow in January of 1457. When said sow was found, she was covered in the boy's blood, and so were her six suckling babies. Their mother's guilt was plain, but the court had some concerns about condemning the piglets. They were innocents by some measures and not responsible for their poor upbringing. So, the newly orphaned oinkers were given over to the care of Catherine de Bernon, the lady of the commune. Killing kids wasn't the only thing that could get a pig in trouble, though. In 1349, one French heifer was hanged for the curious crime of scarfing down communion wafers. Maybe the most memorable of all these pig trials was the one that took place at fontenay en rose in 1266. The pig in question was charged with mangling the head and arms of a child, and its punishment was set to match the crime. Before being hung and then burnt, the pig's head and forelegs were to be maimed as the victims. And if that isn't strange and troubling enough, before the sentence was carried out, the pig was dressed up in formal boy's clothing, including another wig. In case I haven't earned that content warning enough already, let's talk a little bit about bestiality. In medieval law, it was known by the Latin phrase offensa cujus nominatio crimen est, which roughly translates to the euphemistically vague offense by whose appointment is the crime. Anyone who committed an offense by whose appointment was the crime was liable to be burned alive, and so too was the, uh, offended? Both person and animal were considered equally culpable in most cases, and usually they were punished together. Both pig and owner were burnt at Corbeil in 1466. A man was hanged and then burnt along with his cow in Paris in 1546. When Guillaume Guillart was convicted of sodomy with his dog, he was hung, but the dog got a slightly kinder sentence, being struck quickly in the head. Then both bodies were thrown into a pit and burnt together. When a man and his mare were found guilty of sodomy in Ottendorf in 1684, the court specifically enjoined that the body of the horse should be laid upon the man's before they were burnt. The laugh-a-minute Puritan preacher Cotton Mather tells one particularly distressing tale of tail chasing, which occurred in New Haven in 1662. The accused was a 62-year-old parishioner by the name of Potter, who was caught, quote, in most infandous buggeries for no less than 50 years together. He went to the gallows along with a cow, two steers, three sheep, and two pigs. Mather says that Potter was a well-respected member of the community, known for his piety, and nobody had any cause to suspect him of such perversions, other than his wife, who had caught him with the family dog in flagrante delicto a decade earlier. But he'd convinced her it was a one-time thing because the dog had seduced him, and she took him at his word. You might be thinking, 
Now, you should be thinking that it's pretty fucked up to punish the animals who were, in fact, the victims of these crimes and the double victims once the executions were meted out. But that was something that was occasionally accounted for. In 1750, one Jacques Ferrand was, quote, taken in the act of coition with a she-ass, and both were put on trial. Many witnesses came to the donkey's defense. The townspeople, as well as the church prior, signed a statement attesting that they had all known the donkey since she was a very good little girl, and in word and deed, and in all her habits of life, a most honest creature. No such statement was written on behalf of Jacques. He was sentenced to death, and the donkey acquitted. All right, that's that. With the animal diddling finally in the rearview mirror, maybe it's time to return to that question. What was the point of all this? I think we can actually come to a somewhat confident understanding of the purpose of the ecclesiastical trials. Insects, vermin, snakes, and other such infestations were a real threat, and the communities they affected had little real way to deal with them. Turning to religion under otherwise hopeless circumstances is totally natural. There are no atheists in moleholes. But that primary concern of whether such infestations were natural, divine, or demonic also tells us something. If the weevils eating your grapes were the will of God, then you had little choice but to accept the blight. Appealing to the church provided a theological backing for you to kill the otherwise protected mice in your fields. Not coincidentally, the church tended to charge for these sorts of excommunications and usually told the affected communities that the best defense against their plight was more tithing. The criminal prosecution of animals is a tougher thing to make sense of. The simplest explanation is that human ideas of justice, however we might gussy them up, are really just natural extensions of human ideas of vengeance. And that sense of vengeance isn't innately given to a lot of reason or ethics. In the case of violent incidents, there's a similarly simple argument that an animal which has done harm to a person might do harm to a person again. We see that today, when in rare events, bears or sharks are put down after attacking, under the logic that otherwise the attacks will continue. There's a somewhat popular modern belief that animal trials are a sign that the people who held them must have respected the beasts in question, that they extended what we might call human rights far beyond humans. But this seems a tad like wishful thinking. The problem with the compassionate interpretation, aside from that it led to the quite compassionless hanging, dismembering, and burning of hundreds of animals, is that the same instinct was applied less frequently to inanimate objects. There is a report of a son chopping down the tree that his father fell from, a sword being banished for stabbing a priest, no word on the sword wielder, and bread being excommunicated for allowing itself to be hoarded by a tyrant. When some jealous rivals pushed over a statue of the Athenian athlete Nikon of Thassos, it landed on one of them and was brought to court for murder, sentenced and thrown into the Aegean Sea. No, I don't think the animal rights crowd should look enviously on the era of animal trials, and there's no one succinct explanation for why they were such a rage. But it seems to me like the best way of getting inside the mindset is not to focus on attitudes towards animals, but towards justice. In the story of Oedipus, when a plague struck Thebes, its cause was plain to see, even to the blind Tiresias. 
Someone had killed King Laius, and his murderer had never been caught. An unsolved murder could lead to hauntings, demons, famines, wars, all sorts of badness. This idea that justice is an intrinsic part of the universe, which needs to be maintained and balanced for cosmic or divine reasons, is pretty foreign to us now, or it is to me, at least. We've had a renaissance, a couple of enlightenments, some transcendentalist movements, modernism, postmodernism, and a whole slew of other philosophical frameworks that have shaped our worldview through the last few centuries, and most all of them agree that justice is a human construct or at least something that doesn't interact with the physical plane of existence. The Scottish philosopher David Hume famously cut a line between the is and the ought. Yes, it might be nice if all wrongs tended to be righted, if the world itself hammered the arc of time towards justice, but in practice, existence simply does what it does. The history of animal trials shows how recent that distinction is and what things were like before it. To medieval Christians, there was a natural order to the world, determined by God, and if that order was violated, it fell to humans, the stewards of the earth, to correct things, or else something terrible would happen. Which brings us, finally, to the third kind of trial, and nearly to the rooster of Basel. Aha, you know what that means. It is the sound of another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify gives entrepreneurs the resources once reserved for big business, so upstarts, startups, and established businesses alike can sell everywhere, synchronize online and in-person sales, and effortlessly stay informed. Scaling your business is a journey of endless possibility, and I love how Shopify has the tools and resources that make it easy for any business to succeed, from down the street to around the globe. Shopify powers millions of businesses, from first sale to full scale, reach customers online and across social networks with an ever-growing suite of channel integrations and apps, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Pinterest, and more. Gain insights as you grow with detailed reporting on conversion rates, profit margins, and beyond. More than a store, Shopify grows with you. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Go to shopify.com slash the constant, all lowercase, for a free 14-day trial and get full access to Shopify's entire suite of features. Grow your business with Shopify today. Go to shopify.com slash the constant right now. Shopify.com slash the constant. This episode is brought to you by Jinx, the superfood-powered dog kibble everyone's been talking about. See the results for yourself and try their one-month transformation. Within the first few weeks, you'll see how Jinx can help with your dog's energy, mood, and even digestion. And it's all thanks to the high-quality ingredients they use, like organic chicken, Atlantic salmon, and grass-fed beef. Try the one-month transformation today. Find Jinx in your local Walmart. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.
Roughly a hundred years after they executed the rooster, which I promise will eventually be the proper subject of this episode, the people of Basel killed a moose. The murder weapon was an apple stuffed with broken needles. In case you find yourself wondering, no, moose are not and were not native to northern Switzerland. In 1571, the last Franciscan monk of Berlin's Grey Abbey died, and Leonhard Thurneiser moved into the vacant grounds. He established there a scientific library, a grand botanical garden, and the first animal menagerie in the region. Thurneiser was well-known and respected by intellectuals and nobles throughout Europe as a goldsmith, a doctor, an astronomer, a mathematician, and an explorer. So, plenty of his wealthy and important friends were happy to chip in, supplying him with all sorts of plants and animals, particularly New World species like parrots and monkeys. And his pal Duke Ratzewill of Polish-Lithuania gave him a very special present, the moose. He brought the moose with him back to Basel in 1579, where his reputation was uh, quite a bit different. Thurneiser was regarded charitably as a philanderer and a hothead. Less charitably, the people of Basel thought he was a wizard, an alchemist, a sorcerer in league with the devil. They didn't know what a moose was, but they sure as shit didn't like it walking around their town. In fairness, moose are absolutely terrifying, even if you do know what they are, and your first experience of their existence isn't seeing one hove into your city behind a noted satanic wizard. They called it Thurneiser's Demon. Unlike all the snails and dogs and horses and eels and pigs and pigs and pigs so far discussed, Thurneiser's Demon didn't step on anybody or gore any children or eat any communion wafers. It wasn't even caught in carnal acts with a local farmhand. The thing that was wrong with Thurneiser's Demon wasn't anything that it did, but what it was. And so it was fed a needle-pocked apple for the good of the city. Animal trials were mainly a way to ensure justice was done, because justice was a critical part of the natural order, which meant that there was also a third sort of animal trial, one that skipped the middleman and adjudicated whether the mere existence of a creature violated nature. Thurneiser's demon was just such an offender, and so was his predecessor a hundred years earlier, the rooster of Basel. A rooster is not a moose. The Boslers, yes, that is, as far as I can tell what you call people from Basel, the Boslers were all too familiar with roosters. And the particular rooster in question didn't stand out on sight. It looked like any other baseline cockerel. In fact, it was how much it looked like a normal rooster that arguably caused all the trouble. Unfortunately, the narrative record of what occurred in 1474 Basel is thin, and a lot of what exists is untrustworthy. We don't know how old the rooster was or where he came from or how long he'd lived with his then owners. If there were any early signs or incidents, they weren't recorded. But in August of that year, the rooster was discovered sitting by himself on top of an egg. The first time, his owners must have figured it was a coincidence or some weird quirk of timing that a hen had laid the egg and the rooster lay down on top of it by happenstance. But then it happened again, at least one, maybe several more times. The rooster, that is to say, a male chicken, was laying eggs. That wasn't just odd 
or mysterious or even frightening. It was, according to the record, a, quote, heinous and unnatural crime. The exact terms of that crime require a really funky, shaggy dog lesson in etymology. In the Historia Naturalis, Pliny had written of an animal called the Ichnemon, which, according to him, waits and watches for a crocodile to fall asleep with its mouth open so that it can, quote, dart down the open gullet like a javelin and gnaw out the belly. Plutarch called the Ichnemon the pharaoh's rat, and for a long while, people thought it must be something like a mongoose. In the 3rd century AD, the geographer Gaius Solanus wrote a popular book entitled The Wonders of the World, the majority of which was just a plagiarized rewrite of Pliny's history. But when he described the crocodile belly eater, he called it after the Greek word for otter, anhydrous. There were two things that made that a fateful decision. For one, Pliny had already called a water snake in Hydrus, so when future readers compared Pliny and Solanus, they couldn't tell which was what. And, just for a little icing, they also recognized the root of the word as Hydra, i.e. the mythical snake monster with the many heads and poisonous breath. That's all troublesome enough, but it gets more confused. Because in the passage directly before the Ichnemon, Pliny had described a bird, which he called Trochilos, which also waits for the crocodile to open its mouth so it can jump in and clean the beast's teeth. From the 4th century on through the millennium, all of these things became hopelessly muddled. The Ichnemon, the Trochilos, the Anhydrus, and the Hydra. There are stories of small winged dragons that kill crocodiles from the inside out, stories of weasels being seduced into the bellies of toads, stories of crocodiles eating birds only to be injured from the pecking of the prey, and so on and so on and so forth. All of them from one little line in Pliny and a small translational error by Solanus. But wait, there's more. The Latin word that Pliny used for crocodile was corcodilus, which is the Latin name for the animal even today. But over dozens of translations and commentaries, this word also became mangled to cockadrill or cocatrilles. And finally, in 1262, the Italian philosopher Brunetto Latini writes up his version, the cockatrice. And then, through a set of circumstances too complicated for me to either explain or fully grasp, the cockatrice also fell into the soup. By the mid-13th century, the whole story was an impenetrable globular mess. There was some kind of animal that got into the stomach of some other kind of animal, either willingly or otherwise, and then kicked its ass from the colon outwards. It might be a fish, or a bird, or some sort of weasel, or even a dragon. And it could be called any number of things, including the bastardized version of the name of the thing it was supposedly eaten by, the cockatrice. Meanwhile... In a separate section, Pliny described a small snake that was so dangerous it left a puddle of deadly venom trailing behind it wherever it went. It was so toxic that it could literally kill just by looking at you. He called this snake the basilisk. How exactly the basilisk and the cockatrice became entangled is also too long and unsure a story for me to relate here. It probably had to do with the similarities between the hydra and the basilisk, but also potentially had something to do with the weasel, since Pliny says that the mongoose hunts and eats basilisks. 
It could also come down to the word cockatrice itself and how similar it sounded to the word for a male chicken. Because, you see, by this time, it was popularly believed that basilisks were born from eggs that had been laid by roosters. So, when that poor, dumb chicken farmer discovered a rooster laying eggs in Basel in August of 1474, it was a very serious issue. The eggs might hatch into feathered killer snakes, or else roosters with serpent tails. Either way, they'd emit a poisonous breath and kill anyone they glanced at. Because the cockspawn was so monstrous, and the egg itself thought to be used in magic, and since it was a deeply abnormal thing to have happen, the assumption was that the rooster of Basel must have come from some act of devilry. It was commonly believed that a satanic toad was involved, either that it would hatch the egg itself or else sodomize the rooster to create the egg in the first place. Either way, the trial of the rooster of Basel would be, in essence, a witch trial. As we've established, though, even a witch trial, and even a witch trial for a rooster, had to be undertaken properly. So, the accused was given an attorney, who did his level best to defend his client. Almost everything I know about the trial itself comes from a book entitled The Lawyer in History, Literature, and Humor, written by William Andrews in 1897, and Andrews doesn't give his sources. So, we should apply a thick crust of salt to what he says went down, even though his description seems very much in keeping with the kinds of arguments lawyers made on behalf of their animal clients at the time. According to Williams, the lawyer couldn't deny that the rooster laid eggs. That much the defense admitted as proven. What wasn't proven, he argued, was the intent. Beyond some superstitious conjecture, there was no sign of evil in the rooster. More than that, not even the prosecution was claiming that his client had done any real harm. Unlike all those pigs, no one and nothing had been hurt. Instead, the prosecution was trying to say that the rooster of Basel was guilty of sorcery. But that was ludicrous. To cast a spell required a deal with the devil, and to deal with the devil required a contract, and animals couldn't sign contracts. There was, to quote Williams here, no instance on record of Satan having made a compact with one of the brute creation. Ergo, if the devil is in it, you must acquit. <sighs> I workshopped like 10 different versions of that joke, and that was the best one. <laughs> If the joke doesn't fit, I want to quit. The prosecutor countered the argument by appealing to the Gospels. Yes, it was true that animals couldn't willingly enter into a deal with the devil, but nevertheless, they were sometimes possessed by demons. And when Jesus cast the legion demons into a herd of pigs in Galilee, the pigs were drowned. WWJD with an egg-laying rooster? Kill the fucker. That was good enough for the judge. The rooster of Basel was tied to a stake on a hill overlooking the town and burnt along with one of the eggs. The 20th century British biochemist and science historian Joseph Needham saw something incredibly profound in this moment. He wondered how the same society that irrationally executed a rooster could be the same one which, a hundred years later, gave birth to Johann Kepler, who determined the laws of planetary motion. Needham, and later E.V. Walter, collapsed that paradox. 
arguing that it makes sense that a belief system which held that the laws of nature could be adjudicated would naturally apply that kind of judicial scrutiny to nature itself. And that is a fascinating hypothesis. But it's not why I'm telling you this story. This story, by the way, largely comes from Edmund P. Evans, who wrote The Criminal Prosecution and Capital Punishment of Animals in 1906. Even more than 100 years on, it's still basically the definitive work on the subject, and most of the things I've detailed here either come from Evans or at least supported by him. When it comes to the story of the rooster of Basel specifically, what I'm interested in is what Evans says next. Once the rooster was executed, the Basel City Chronicle says that the executioner cut it open and discovered three more eggs waiting inside. For the people of Basel, this must have been taken as vindication, as proof that the bird was bedeviled. But for Evans, it said the opposite. He cast an eye so stinky on this part of the story that it might as well have been a basilisk beam. He called it absurd and wrote, We have to do in this case not with a freak of nature, but with the freak of an excited imagination tainted with superstition. In other words, Evans says, there were no eggs. The executioner imagined them, or the reporter made them up. In the magical worldview of the 15th century, the explanation for a rooster laying eggs was that the devil was behind it. But in the more modern world, the explanation was more rational. It didn't happen. It was a prank or a delusion. Even though, as Evans himself notes, there were other cases of roosters laying eggs in the record. The latest one he knew of was 1730. But I know quite a few more. In 1922, a rooster started laying eggs at a poultry show in Westminster. Like Evans, the people who witnessed it assumed it was a hoax, and they were right, kinda. Somebody had been sneaking into the pen at night and slipping eggs of various sizes and colors into the pen with the rooster. But to sort out whether all of the eggs were the result of this prankster or not, a student at Ayersford Training Center by the name of H.M.B. Spur shut the bird up behind a padlock sterilizing it both from hens and humans. After a few hours, he returned to the pen, opened it up, released the rooster, and found beneath it another egg. He wrote up a report to the National Poultry Journal, which concluded, Seeing is believing, sir, and although previously doubtful, I am now assured that this cock of the South does not lie. It lays. That same year, the Wisconsin Agricultural Experiment Station of the University of Wisconsin-Madison acquired a brown leghorn rooster that was supposedly laying eggs and performed a similar experiment. The animal was put in a padlocked cage, which was covered in wire, which was then shut in a locked room for the night. In the morning, there was an egg. Two days later, there was another, and another, and another, and another, every other day or so for more than a year. In 2010, in Tuscany, a fox got into a local hen house and killed all the females, at which point the only survivor, a crowing cockerel named Gianni, took their place, laying eggs daily. In 2018, an Australian hen named Olivia stopped laying eggs, started crowing, grew a waddle, and changed its plumage. About two years ago, a hen by the name of Betty did the same thing. And those only represent the small proportion of gender-bending chickens whose names I know. 
As it turns out, sex determination in chickens is a complicated affair, and one that we even now don't fully understand. For starters, we don't really know what the chromosomal cause of sex is in chickens. Like mammals, there are two kinds of bird chromosomes, and each animal has two of them. Rather than X and Y, a birds are W and Z. And unlike in mammals, birds that have two of the same chromosome, ZZ, tend to be male. And those with two differing chromosomes, ZW, tend to be female. But why? Well, it is hard to say. It seems, and I mean it seems both as in science doesn't really know this all for sure, and as in I understand it even less than science, it seems as though sex is largely determined by a gene linked to the Z chromosome, called DMRT1, which is already a little curious, because females do have a Z chromosome. To complicate things a bit further, there are ZZ chickens, chromosomally male, which have reduced DMRT1 activity, and they are anatomically female. So, maybe maleness is actually a matter of degrees. But that is not all, by a long shot. You might have seen pictures of cardinals or finches or even chickens on Instagram or something that seem to have a straight line down their center. On the left side, they look female. On the right side, they look male. And you might have figured that these animals are chimeras, that they are essentially twins that merged into one, which is possible. There are bird chimeras, and the rooster of Basel could have been one. But most of these asymmetrical birds aren't chimeras. It turns out that bird cells are sexually autonomous. So rather than expressing sexual characteristics based only on the hormones secreted from the gonads, as in mammals, each cell has sort of a gendered property built in. But not all of those cells necessarily have the same property. That's all stuff science has just started working out in the last couple of decades. But speaking of gonads, not long after the University of Wisconsin took guardianship of its egg-laying rooster, another explanation was found. Like most animals, birds are largely symmetrical, including in the gonads, but usually only one side fully develops. So a hen typically has an ovary on one side and an undeveloped protogonad on the other. That ovary releases estrogen, and there's your female. But sometimes that protogonad isn't so proto. Sometimes it starts producing testosterone, or sometimes the ovary stops producing estrogen, and spontaneously a hen becomes a rooster, or vice versa. Both Evans and the people of Basel made the same error. They thought they knew what was natural, and it was only natural for them to think so. After all, a hen is a hen, and a rooster is a rooster, and what could be more obvious? But lots of things are obvious when you don't have all the data, when you haven't looked closely enough, or listened closely enough, or thought hard enough. It's easy to feel sure when you just dismiss everything that contradicts your beliefs as lies and hoaxes and delusions and devilry. Usually the wise thing is to admit we don't know that we could be wrong, that we need to see more and listen more and think more. The laws of nature are rarely obvious. And when we make our own human laws to try to enforce what we think is natural, we tend to end up doing grievous harm. Unlike the rooster of Basel, 
who, despite rumor and superstition and hysterical fears of poison and magic and dangerous glances, even the court admitted, never hurt anyone. We've been wrong before. Let's not cock things up now. Music for today's episode provided by Epidemic Sound, Lee Rosevere, and Blue Dot Sessions. Our website is constantpodcast.com, where you can find old episodes, our social media handles, and our contact page, which you can use to send your stories of getting things wrong. Or call 708-733-5584 and leave us a voicemail. If you'd like to support this show, there are a lot of ways to do it. Go to patreon.com slash the constant to sign up as a financial backer, and you'll receive access to our secret feed of monthly bonus episodes. Rate and review the show wherever you listen, and tell a friend. Until next time, from Chicago, Illinois, where Mrs. O'Leary's cow has been getting a bad rap for 151 years, this has been The Constant.